Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully. Welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus. I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie? I am so great, Lawrence. Thank you for asking. I am great because today we are so very, very lucky to interview Charlie Sykes, who is the editor-in-chief of the website, The Bulwark. And I am sure that many of our listeners are familiar with the work of Mr. Sykes. He is um, a former conservative radio talk show host. He has written many, many books. And um, right now his work is influential, instrumental, all the entels, um, because he just uh, he and the folks at the Bulwark are just doing such really great discussions and hosting different podcasts and um, and talking about the things that are very very important today. And I am also sure that listeners are wondering: Do you guys have a crush on the Bulwark? Because we interviewed Jim Swift from the Bulwark, and now we're interviewing Charlie Sykes. Well, to and be fair, you do have a crush on Tim Miller. I And I do very much have a crush on Tim Miller. There's no two ways about that. And I know that he's sitting there thinking, nope, never going to happen, lady. But that's <laughs> it's, an, it's an intellectual crush, Mr. Miller. It is an intellectual crush. Um, to be fair, I also have intellectual crushes on JBL and Sarah Longwell. So, um, you know, I, I just I love the Bulwark very much because there are opinions that these writers and these podcast hosts espouse that I agree with. And there are also opinions that I happen to not agree with, but I walk away learning more and feeling smarter every time I read something or listen to someone on one of their shows. And so I love the measured way that they discuss things. I love that I can listen to a center right perspective and think, you know what? Hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. And then also listen to a center left perspective and say, yep, that's what I thought. And that's also a good point. So I got to tell you, I am a huge fan of the Bulwark and an even bigger fan of Charlie Sykes. I also love Charlie Sykes. And I think it's very unfair that he seems to have everything. He's like, you know, it's like Tim Miller he has everything right. Uh, he's smart. He writes well. He's got a great radio voice. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to do any one of those things really well. And yet he has all of them. Uh, and I love the Bulwark. I know that you're a member, just like I am. And what I really value about these commentary sites, they're not journalism, right? So we should be clear that when you're making your media diet, you should have, you know, really solid, multiple, solid, credible journalistic sources, right? To get your news. But there's always room for some really solid commentary, right? So here are the facts. And what should we do? What sorts of policies should we develop about these facts, right? And it's important, you know, not, not every issue can be solved by liberal policies. It's important to get that conservative perspective. And the bulwark does it fairly, right? They don't try to spin facts. They never step out off of an empirical ledge. They say, these are the facts. We agree on the facts now. From a conservative perspective, this is what we think. These are the policies we think would make sense, right? And so I just think they do such a fair job. Uh, they deal in the real world which is where me and you want to be the real world of facts and real data. And then we can have the debate about what should we do about these things? I agree. I think that that's, um, you know, that's the reason that both of us are super fans. And so I think without further ado, what do you say? I think we should bring on Charlie and his radio voice. Charlie Sykes, thank you so much for joining us today. It is um, a real treat. I have well, to thank say you. that. Thank you. In preparation for this interview, I went back and reread your 2017 book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, which is published by St. Martin's Press and is available everywhere you can buy books. And in that book, you explained the right-wing media, especially how this ecosystem helped grow and sustain Donald Trump as a candidate and then as a president. And I am also a loyal 
Bulwark subscriber, and I listen to your podcast, which is available on iTunes, um, as well as the Next Level and the Super Secret podcast, because I am a paid member and I strongly suggest everybody. Um, that is that is money that is well spent. Um, so recently, JVL and Sarah Longwell taught what I thought to be this masterclass on how outrage is the new earned media. And recently, you also spoke with Mona Charon and made the very astute observation about the use of the term cancel culture and how the rejection of cancel culture should not be an opening of the floodgates to all forms of hateful garbage rhetoric. And the combination of, of all of this together has me kind of noodling around with the idea of how conservatives have redefined their terms today. And so I have a question for you about the new meaning of bravery. And I hadn't really thought about this until I listened to you and Ms. Mm. Sharon talk about it. And, and you write in your book about how Rush Limbaugh lauded Donald Trump when he was a candidate for standing by his slur against John McCain and called it brave. Uh, it was brave that Trump never apologized for anything. Um, this kind of shamelessness really worked for former President Trump. And now it's being copied by many on the right. But it totally flips the meaning of bravery on its head. And so I'm wondering how, given this, how do you view this new definition, the use of bravery by many on the right to mean something that I think, you know, established conservatives and, and viewers of politics would think was not brave at all? And what do you think it's going to mean for Republican candidates for office and for the right wing media circle that supports them? No, that's an excellent question. I think you're going to see a lot more of that because that's become embedded now in this whole culture of owning the libs and he fights. And, you know, the only thing that matters is if you can get liberal tears. And part of that is that you can be as outrageous as possible, but you have this built in defense denial structure, which is that if you say something that's stupid and racist uh, and then someone says, hey, by the way, that's stupid and racist, you could say, well, see, I'm being victimized. They're trying to silence me. And um you know, I'm I'm going to stand here bravely and continue to stay the stupid and uh, racist thing. But it is interesting. It's kind of this faux masculinity that uh, that uh, that the right has adopted, <clears throat> which includes an absolute um, refusal to apologize or acknowledge fault in any way whatsoever. And um, you know, all of this is part of this culture that we want people who fight to win, no matter what. And it really is sort of a circular argument because, OK, you want people who fight, but for what? It, it increasingly doesn't seem to matter. Uh, so, for example, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, he, just this weekend was saying that the, the Supreme Court lacked courage. They weren't brave enough to overturn the election. Well, what, what has bravery got to do with this? He's saying so they they wouldn't ignore the Constitution. They would not uh, use their unelected power to overturn the verdict of of the voters, that somehow this becomes a kind of bravery. Um, so I, I think it is it is it is sort of faux machoism. It is this uh, embrace of shamelessness as a superpower. And uh, I, I think it can lead the right into some cul-de-sacs because if you can never apologize then you can never retreat and then you're going to own everything and that may work within the the echo chambers which is now kind of an old-fashioned term because i think it's worse than an echo chamber but but as you fold into yourself you're talking to yourself increasingly stroking yourself and making it harder and harder to communicate outside of the of, of this of this of this world where you're constantly kind of waving your you-know-what rather than advancing intelligent or persuasive policy ideas. I, I love that term, uh, the cul-de-sac, because I think what you're describing is what um, some have termed epistemic closure. Yeah, very right? much. The mm -hmm. idea that you're just talking, you know, you're just talk preaching to the choir. And I wonder how long that can continue. I mean, we're so sharply divided right now, but we're fairly evenly divided as well. And so do you think it's just going to continue this kind of, um, you know, this, this kind of cul-de-sac that's just going to keep yes. everybody angry. And because the majorities are so slim, 
um, that we're just going to kind of keep passing off back and forth leadership between parties and and we're never really going to get anywhere because we're in a cul-de-sac. I've got to use that. That's fantastic. Yeah, we, we, we are in we are in kind of a cul-de-sac and um, what, whatever's happening now, at least on the right, is going to get worse. You know, I, I think about people ask me about, uh, you know, what I wrote back in 2017 and I had a kind of a dark view and the reality turns out to be worse than what I thought. Um, every single trend there has accelerated in terms of this, you know, the creation of the alternative reality silos and in, in, in terms of the sort of the celebration of of this kind of tribal barbarism. Um, but, you, you know, it, it is it is kind of turned back in itself. It's funny that we're doing this podcast today because I did um, the Bulwark podcast with uh, Nicholas Grossman. And we were talking about his piece in the Bulwark where he talks about conservative fanboys, how they're increasingly talking to themselves. It's like it's like a group of, you know, you know, movie fans who begin to use sort of a code language that if you don't know the backstory, if you don't know all the references, you have no idea what they're talking about. And the analogy he used was it's a little bit like Wanda, watching WandaVision, that if you don't get all of the old sitcoms or if you don't understand the Marvel universe, you can't really understand what's going on there. And so the right wing media has become this kind of, you know, inside wink, 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 where you get a dopamine hit if you understand what the reference is. But if you wander in from outside, you go, Who, what the hell are you people talking about? No, really, I don't get that. You know, what? what is that? What is that signal? What is that? What does that mean? What is that narrative that you're pushing? And you go into Ben Shapiro world or even much of Fox News and you do get people who are, you know, speaking to themselves in this very self-referential language, these self-referential images. So I, I don't I think that that's going to continue to get worse. But I think that the real possibility is that it will continue to shrink the conservative appeal to anyone outside of that that epistemic bubble. Have you ever heard of Will Summer? He's now at the Daily Beast and he used to be at the Hill. Sure, follow his stuff very much. Yeah. Oh, he's so great. Mm-hmm. Um, he told me about that. I wrote a book a couple of years ago about right wing media mm-hmm. and um, I interviewed him and, and he was talking about this in terms of particularly the conspiracy stuff. And I interviewed him two months after QAnon first started on Reddit. And Mm. he was talking about high context culture. And the way that he referred to it is it's as if you have dropped into a soap opera at like the 300th episode. Right. And so perfect. Yeah. Isn't that so great? And so they, they keep going back to the same boogeyman um, because, you know, the characters. And so, you know, that it's Hillary Clinton. And even though she's gone and really doesn't play much of a role anymore, but it's somebody that you can hang your hat on. And um, and so as you're talking about this, it it makes me think that not only now is it the conspiracy folks, but it has leaked into the broader, more mainstream conservative media as well. No, there's no question about it that, that that it has. It's like a it's like a blast radius of, uh, you know, watching that of the craziness. And I was also, you know, thinking about and I'm I'm a little bit tired of talking about it for a variety of reasons. But, you know, why Ron Johnson sounds as crazy as he does? Well, he, it is crazy. But part of it is, is that it's incomprehensible that he's saying these things unless you understand that he's gone down these rabbit holes, that he's living in this universe. And so that, that if you know the code words and the reasons why he says it, then suddenly it's like, aha, okay, that's what he's saying. That's why he's doing this. And, you know, it it may be slightly unfair, although I think it's only, you know, only slightly that, you know, I, I was talking with some reporters at the New York times about this. And I'm, I, I still, they tell people, I don't exactly know what happened to him, but he's gone from somebody that, you know, was in the world of the chamber, a chamber of commerce Republican to somebody who now sounds like he reads the Gateway Pundit on a daily basis. I don't know if he reads the Gateway Pundit on a daily basis, but I wouldn't be shocked to find out that he does, because if you spend time in that kind, that corner of the fever swamp, then a lot of the things that he says will will fit in. It's like missing pieces of a puzzle. But to anyone on the outside, you're going, where is this nutty stuff coming from? And so that's how people who sort of wander outside this 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 bubble, this cave sound sound like in the broad daylight. And, you know, you're you're right. I think it fits into probably a broader pattern, regardless of ideology of, of kind of the way that we're shortcutting everything. You know, we, we have code words for things now. And so we don't have to talk about anything larger than 
you know, all lives matter. And you kind of get the idea, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Everything is just kind of has like a nickname or a shortcut. Right. Sure. And yeah. Um, yeah, and that, you know, I think it's pronounced on the right. And because there is that blurring now, it just has spread everywhere. I liked your blast zone. That's really good also. Um, your discussion recently about J.D. Vance, it sounds almost similar to your thoughts about Ron John, that these were well, folks who were mainstream and then kind of fell out of that. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. I, I've often thought that there was a, sort of this vast invisible vortex that pulled otherwise reasonable people toward the extremes. And, you know, and I've watched this over and over and over again, and we wrestle with this. I mean, I'll be honest with you, a lot of us wrestle with the question of, OK, were, were they always like this or did they change in some way? And of course, it's a, it's it's complicated because, you know, we're not all one way or the other way. But and I'll get to J.D. Vance in a moment. But there are people who are normal, reasonable politicians who suddenly then begin to sound crazy. Why? Well, because they understand what the incentives are, what the incentives to be asked back on Fox News as a guest are, what it takes to get clicks, how you raise money. There's certain buttons that you push if you want to do that. And in the it, it is sort of like, you know, in search of the dopamine hit that you constantly need to be more outrageous, stoke the outrage. If you, uh, you know, if you're a, a you know, wannabe right winger and you go on Fox News and you do it on the one hand, on the other hand, well, let's, you know, come let us reason together. Let's engage in nuance. That'll probably be the last time you're asked on. On the other hand, if you go on and you say Barack Obama's rhetoric, you know, is responsible for those cops who are dead. Well, then you become Sheriff David Clark and you realize, hey, I've been asked on and becoming famous and I can do this. But I have to keep that level of, you know, that level of outrage higher and higher. And so you see that transformation into a complete like, what the hell happened to you, man? I mean, but J.D. Vance is, is, is a is also kind of a what a cautionary tale because he's a Yale graduate, smart guy, best selling book, clearly a thoughtful person who now has decided that he wants to go deeper into Trump world. And what he's doing is essentially setting aside his the, the, that nuance and that thoughtfulness. And he knows what the buzzwords are. He knows what he's got to say. He knows what the button, you know, what these shorthand phrases are. Attack immigrants, you know, uh, kind of roll your eyes, you know, give a wink, wink to QAnon um, over, over here. And... With him, it seems so extreme because you kind of know that he knows better, but he also knows what the formula is that leads to success these days. That is um, that is as heartbreaking as it is realistic, you know, because the idea that these bookers need to bring the heat, you know, they, they just need guests who are going to come on and just rile everybody up. Um I, you're right. Well, that you know, by, by, by the way, you know, yeah. in, in that in that context, I, I had a, I had a conversation off the air with a longtime friend whose name you would know, and we were talking about this about various people that we knew that had gone crazy and why it keeps happening. And you know, at one point in the conversation, he said, "You know, part of it is the way some of these contracts are structured." I know it sounds that sounds really sort of simplistic, but you know, a lot of the Fox contributors get paid per. Um, you know, per appearance. And so if you get paid, say, $500 per appearance, the incentives to get asked back becomes much greater. And uh, so it, it basically becomes a competition, you know, that, that you need to give them what they want. And so, again, the, it's sort of like the you say certain things and you get the pellet. And uh, that's. Sure. And there's endless competition because there's always someone behind you who's ready to even bring it a just a slight bit. There's more always somebody younger and blonder behind you <laughs> at Fox. That's News. the name of a new show at Fox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Younger and blonder behind you. Yeah, that's right. And and who is not burdened with self-reflection or having ever, ever read a book. You know, I mean, like, you're never going to win a dumb off with Tommy Lauren, you know, <laughs> Hey, Charlie, I have a question for you. And this is a question that I ask a lot of people. And when I when I talk to my more liberal friends about this, oftentimes the answer I always get is either an eye roll or, you know, like, well, who cares? It doesn't really matter anyway. But it really does actually really interest me because I think on some level it matters, which is, and I asked Jim Swift this question when he was on with us a few episodes ago. And that is, you know, you guys have made the point uh, on many of your shows that how how much 
the the conservative ecosystem knows each other. Like you guys know folks from the dispatch and a variety of other mm-hmm. places. And so clearly you're talking to folks, at least on some level, you're having some sort of communication. So uh, on what level is that stuff performative, right? So these people have have done this for clicks, have done this for contracts, et cetera. But, you know, off the air, they say, look, I don't really believe in QAnon. Like, you know, Tucker Carlson off the air says, you know, I know QAnon's on a website somewhere. <laughs> like, I know it's, you know, something else. Uh, or on what level is this people really have gone crazy? Like, do you think Ron, guys like Ron Johnson, like what percentage of these folks truly have lost their minds? And what percentage Boy. are just doing this to, to survive? Okay, that's an excellent question. And I don't I don't know the answer to that. And, and maybe it's even more complex than that, which is that maybe people begin per- performatively and then convince themselves that they because psychologically it's necessary for them to believe it. It's less so in on, on the print side. I think that you you see less of that performative uh, stuff. Uh, Tucker Carlson knows exactly what he's doing. A lot of that is really performative, which doesn't mean that he doesn't get up thinking, you know, I really hate liberals. I really want to upset progressives. I really want to, you know, expand, uh, you know, the number of conservatives. But um, look, he's a smart guy. He's a talented writer. And he knows that he's, you know, playing this particular game. And he doesn't believe all of this stuff, I don't think. However, when I was on the air, every once in a while, I would be when I was a conservative talk show host, I would be accused of, well, you're saying that just because, you know, you want to make money or, you know, because you, you need to do that. And I, I, I always push back on this. You know, I believe all this stuff. And I assumed that everyone else believed it, too. And now I look back and I go, I don't really know. I spent a lot of time going back. And I know you have as well. Going back, you know, and read some of the transcripts from from Rush Limbaugh and tried to figure out what he was doing. The thing about Rush Limbaugh that that he every once in a while he would drop the mask and make it very clear. Look, people, I don't have a political agenda. I am not trying to change the world. I am a an entertainer. I am a radio guy. Everything I do is to put on a radio show. He was basically signaling for years. This is all performative. Just so you understand that. Now, I think that he forgot that it was a shtick at a certain point, and he began to take himself very, very seriously, particularly near the end. So um, whether he believed it or not, he, you know, at a certain point, it becomes a game. This is the game I'm playing, and I'm going to play it aggressively. Now, you asked about Ron Johnson. I have to tell you that I think that Ron Johnson is so far down his own rabbit holes now that he believes, he deeply believes um, a lot of the stuff he is saying, that when uh, he is accused of racism for contrasting the law-abiding Trump supporters who would never break the law while they were attacking the Capitol with Black Lives Matter protesters, and people say that's racist. He doesn't see it as racist at all. This is this is exactly the way he sees things. And because he's built the shell around him of the denial, he's able to say, see, well, this is what you always say about us. I mean, he's able to push back on, on it. So I I think he actually does believe it at this point. But then you get to the people like the Josh Hawleys and the Tom Cottons and Ted Cruz, and a hell of a lot of it is just performance. I mean, these guys are from Ivy League universities, and they basically decided that they're going to become cover bands for Trumpism. That's not my phrase. I wish I would have come up with that one. Um, but um, it's it, it's a very interesting question, and I, and I don't know. I mean, and there are some people who I think have just been driven insane by the you know, by the world of of uh, social media and just under the stress and the pressure of having to take positions that are uncomfortable and then being attacked for it. It's kind of amazing the psychological impact that can have because not everybody's used to being attacked publicly. I mean, that's that's um, that's uh, it's it, it's easy. It's easy to forget how how un- unusual it is for some of these folks. That was a long answer to your question. Sorry, I was not more definitive, but I I worry. I wonder about that all the time myself. Long is good. Our, our listeners come on for Charlie Sykes. They don't come on for us. So, uh, but I guess my follow up to that question would be that that really undermines. Like, look, if if it's just entertainment, if it's just owning the libs, then fine. Then then it's entertainment, right? But that really undermines the whole argument for why these folks exist. These folks oh, yeah. say they exist, and people who listen to them say they exist. Because they can't get real unfiltered news and commentary from the mainstream press, right? And so they need it from these folks. And then folks like Tucker Carlson go to court and say, no, 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 no reasonable person would ever believe 
that what I'm saying is true. Everybody knows that I'm just making this stuff well, up. Alex right? Jones so like, made that too. So he, at one point, right. so he was an entertainer. And it's like, really? Interesting. So my so my question to you is, uh, you guys in, in the in the bulwark have been making this point lately that you know Reagan perhaps was you know his approach was resp- was you know appropriate for that particular time. Maybe Biden's big government approach is good for now, and maybe there'll be a different approach that's needed at a different point in time. When it comes to things like tech and media and disinformation, you know the idea that we can just flood the zone with good stuff, mm. and the idea that like you know that will take care of it. I don't know. Empirically, you can make that case. Things just, as you've said, just keep getting worse. Like, do we want to risk, like with the insurrection, for instance, I don't like, I don't like big tech canceling big politicians, but there was an immediate threat, right? And so Trump was taken off of Twitter. I mean, are there some immediate actions we should be taking to correct this, this media, this disinformation ecosystem? Uh, I'm sure there are, but I, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I don't know what the answer is when you have uh, so much of it out there, um, so little pushback against it, so many people who are willing to believe it. And there's actually a little twist there that it, it's, it's one thing to have people who lie and then people who are misled. Old story. What we have now is I think we have a large portion of the public out there that kind of knows they're being lied. They don't really care. <laughs> what I'm saying, it's just, and, and that's that's the most difficult thing that that the tribal loyalty is so deeply ingrained. The psychology of it, the motivated reasoning, is what they want is they just want to uh, they just want to be reassured that they're on the right side, and and so that's very very difficult to break. And this is where when I was working on the book, you know, I stumbled upon this, the social psychologist who said, you know, the we have been. I may be raised to believe that, that the human mind is designed to find out what is true, what is right. Well, maybe, in fact, we are wired. Uh, the human mind is wired to strengthen our bonds to our tribe. And any piece of information that strengthens the bonds of the tribe will be accepted. Anything that uh, uh, that challenges that is you know, considered to be dangerous. And I think that, that there's an insight there. But I have wrestled with this question. Um, for the last five years, I was actually on something called the Knight Commission on Restoring uh, Faith in Democracy and Media. And we spent two years just trying to figure out what do you how do you counter disinformation? And I, I won't say that I came up with anything because it, you can't just flood the zone with with more good stuff. Um, I don't I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I wish I, I feel like I ought to have an answer to all of this, but. I think what's happened is, is that the entire ecosystem has been thoroughly corrupted, that there it's not just that you have disinformation. It's the unwillingness of other trusted voices to call out the disinformation. So it's it's one thing. We've always had politicians who will spout both radio edit. So Ron Johnson comes out and he says something that's not true in a healthy political environment. There would be pushback from fellow Republicans. There would be other voices that would say this is just wrong. And those other voices would be the trusted voices on Fox or on National Review or within the Republican Party. And you don't have that. So you have two things. You have the flood of disinformation and the absolute absence of any sort of intellectual hygiene on the right. No one wants to, to say and as long as that's the case, and I don't see that changing anytime soon, things will get worse. And the reason I don't see, think it any time uh, it won't be changing is January 6th was kind of like the ultimate test. It was the Ultron of how far are they willing to go? That if you can have the president of the United States spend months lying about the election, ginning up an insurrection that actually leads to violent, deadly attacks on the Capitol in order to stop the counting of the electoral votes. I mean, this is like if, we, if you and I sat down and we came up with what would be the, like the worst case possible scenario that they wouldn't possibly be able to find a way to rationalize, it would look something like this. It would probably not be as bad as this. And yet look at their ability to just drop it in the memory hole and move past it, to not challenge the lie. In fact, um, and you know, a number of us have pointed this out, believing the big lie about the 2020 election has now become a litmus test for Republicans going forward. Uh, so if, if they're able to swallow that, then I don't see any event 
or series of issues that are going to turn it around. And plus, they're in the perfect environment for conservatives, which is they can be in opposition to everything that Joe Biden does. And this is very comfortable. This is a comfortable place for Republicans and the right wing to be is to have a, you know, Democrats in power and doing things that Democrats do. And all we have to do is be against that. That's actually that's actually a safe and warm spot for conservatives. And you're you're right about all of that. And and there's so much about tribal loyalty and motivated reasoning. And and there's also just so much money and political victory to be made from all of this. Right. I mean, um, I think JVL calls it conservative ink. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's just so there's just so many political actors who are motivated beyond even ideology, just through, you know, how much they can um how much they can sell and and how much they can earn um, from well, that, all of this division. That's true. Yeah. And, 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 there's, and, and there's two levels to that. You know, number one, mm-hmm. you have all of these, you know, organized structures that provide jobs and that because of the donor class decision, uh, various decisions, that if you if you want to continue to be a professional conservative, you have a choice to make. You either go along with all of this and stay employed or you break away and are cast into outer darkness. And if you're in politics, it's not just the big donors on the right, but it's also the the new phenomenon of the grassroots donors who can generate massive amounts of money. So uh, again, all of the incentive structures on the right are lined up to to tell people. And I, I'll be honest with you, I've asked myself if I was 30 something as opposed to what I am, and I had a career ahead of myself and I wanted to still be in the conservative movement, um, would I have been as outspoken as I was? And the answer is clearly not, because I understood that when you broke with Trump, um, your viability within the conservative movement was I, I, I thought it was uh, challenged, it turned out to be much more, you know, a much smaller desert island uh, for for those of us in exile. You know, it strikes me I had not thought about this, although I do have a question about coming in from the wilderness. But is it possible that that by starting the bulwark and with its success that you have actually modeled for people some good behavior? Like maybe you can um, you cannot sell out and you can speak honestly and maybe you will have a pretty great career ahead of you. Just a thought. Well, I would I would hope so. Um, but um, and, and, and I think part of it is that, you know, there's life outside of the, you know, outside of the the, the silo. Um, but most of the if you think of most of the the loudest, uh, you know, former Republican Trump critics, their their careers are outside of that. You know, the, you'll find them on MSNBC or CNN, um, not really within the quote unquote, conservative media ecostructure. So what we had to do is we had to invent a whole new, uh, you know, lane in the media ecosystem. And of course, the jury's still out. Um, I would say that there's, there's what we're doing, what the dispatch is doing. The dispatch, I think, is, you know, uh, is maybe two clicks to the right of us at, at the moment in terms of audience that we are, you know, we're, we're center right, center left, you know, maybe leaning a little bit over to, uh, you know, being willing to collaborate with the Bidenists, um, whereas uh, the dispatch is still leaning a little bit right. But these are these are new lanes separate from the traditional national reviews uh, on on the right. I guess it just for me shows that there's a real hunger for that. I hope so. Because, you know, as 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 people, um, if I ever give a talk, someone will come up afterwards and just say, you know, I just I just want more centrist stuff. I just you know, I don't want this exacerbation outside on the wings. And I, I guess this kind of dovetails in with the, another question that I had for you, which is, um, you know, where should the real conservatives, where do you want the real conservatives to go? Because many on the right are wondering what is so conservative about the Republican Party today. And there was that recent article in Punchbowl that listed all of the issues where the current incarnation of the GOP just diverges wildly from what the Republican Party used to be in the before times, you know, it's like fiscal discipline and defense policy and trade and all that sort of good stuff. So conservatives have obviously been in the wilderness before. We've all read um, all of those wonderful pieces, but there was a party to return to. Where would you where would you like 
to see conservatism go next? Well, I'd like to give you a, a, a really definitive answer to that. But first of all, I'd have to ask, what, what does the term conservatism mean anymore? What does it mean to be a conservative? Because I, I mean, I honestly don't know. Um, it's one of those words which has been robbed of its language, robbed of its meaning. And I mean, not just in the policy sense of what Republicans are going to do, but, but exactly. OK, so what does it mean to be a conservative? What are we conserving? What is the most important thing? And I think that it had become kind of brain dead over, you know, last few years that we hadn't really noticed that in terms of public policy, conservatism basically became um, tax cuts uh, and anti-abortion. And let's keep uh, the pro-life movement really, really, really ginned up so we can get more tax cuts. <laughs> really became sort of down that. And then, of course, we really, really dislike the extreme, uh, you know, extremes on the left. But. Um, I really don't know because there are so many different strands of it. And some of it seems some of it seems just utterly obsolete because you have to change with the times. And so we can't resurrect zombie Reaganism. Uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily work. I mean, conservatism used to be, um, you know, this fusionist movement that was held together by Cold War ideology. Well, as soon as the Cold War ended, that all fell fell apart. So what is the future? Is it libertarian? Is it uh, is it more socially conservative? Is are they ever going to come back together again? I honestly don't know. And I will be honest with you that the and I, there, there, it is important to make a distinction between conservative ideas and the conservative movement, okay? The conservative movement has been so thoroughly discredited, and I am so thoroughly disillusioned with that movement, uh, how willing they were to accept the unacceptable. And I can't imagine being in the same room with them anymore. But so w what is the implication for the conservative ideas? Because I do find myself thinking, you know, did you ever actually believe any of that stuff? You know, was that, you know, Stuart Stevens is a book, called it was all a lie. I'm not willing to go that far, but I'm really open to this, that a lot of this stuff was you sort of just you sort of just sort of latched on to these quote unquote ideas um, to justify some other identity. I really don't know. I really do wrestle with that because there was clearly even in the best of conservatism, there was a recessive gene of things that were quite ugly. And people like me and Bill Crystal and others thought that, again, they would stay recessive, that it would still be off in the corner. And we knew it was there, but we ignored it. And now we're faced with realizing that, no, maybe it wasn't recessive. It's become dominant. And this, I think, requires us to go back and retrospectively ask, did we really understand conservatism, you know, since uh, since World War Two? Um, properly. So if I if I sound a little bit ideologically adrift, it's because I am. Um, before Trump, I think that a lot of people thought of the ideology as kind of this huge buffet table. And you, you kind of had to have everything you had to you had to go through and, you, you know, it, it all came together. So if you were for the flat tax, you also had certain ideas about abortion. And then you had certain ideas about guns. And then you had certain ideas about that, I think, has been completely upset now. And so I'm willing to say I'm not going to take the whole thing. And and I'm also not going to go to the heights of the conservative movement, the 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 commanding heights, the people at the Heritage Foundation and say, tell me what your thoughts are about the size of government, because I know you people are completely full of, full of you know, full of bullshit. Radio edit. So I'm not sure who gets to define those things anymore. Charlie, I wonder if you could comment on the asymmetric polarization. If you listen to people like Tucker Carlson every night, you know, he takes the extremes on the left and he makes them out to be as if they represent the whole party when in fact they don't. And, you know, the data shows that they actually don't. So just to give you an example, just taking two extreme positions. So if you take the really extreme, completely discredited position uh, of some folks on the right, which is that the presidential election, the 2020 presidential election was stolen. Of course, you know, it's been discredited by numerous courts and election officials, but somewhere around 70% of Republicans believe that it was stolen. Uh, polls in late February show that that's still the case, you know, somewhere around 70%. Now, ask an equally extreme question on the left, right? So, if you again, if you listen to Tucker Carlson every night, 
you'll think that Democrats are the party of abolishing police. Well, we know that's not the case, right? So President Biden has come out and said he strongly opposes that idea. And Democrats don't support it either. So if you ask an Ipsos USA Today poll, actually ask folks this in early March, earlier this month, they asked, do you support reforming the police? And about three quarters of Democrats said, yes, we support reforming the police. If you ask them, do you support abolishing the police? It was only 20%. Now, is that a small number? No, it's not small, but it is not anywhere close to a majority, right? That's, that's a small number. Uh, well, I, I just said it wasn't small, but, uh, you know, it's not a majority, right? So one in five, 20% of Democrats support abolishing the police, but about 70% of Republicans think that the election was stolen. These are both extreme positions, right? But one sort of dominates the party on the right and, and really can define some of the craziness that is happening on the right. And one is present on the left, but doesn't dominate it. It's not the, you know, the overwhelming majority of people don't believe it. So it's been asymmetric. Oh, there's no question about it. Um, and because the Democratic Party, what's the old joke about the Democratic Party is not being organized. I don't belong to any organized political party. Is that what Will, Will Rogers? I'm a Democrat. Mm -hmm. I think that's far more true. Um and the Republican Party used to have that kind of personality as well. Uh, it wasn't uh, totally ideological. And, and that, that's been a long time coming. Um, this party is completely different even than it was a decade ago. Uh, and, and, I, and I keep going back and thinking, you know, how did that happen? I mean, in terms of like the cult of personality around Donald Trump, as popular as Ronald Reagan was, there was never this kind of a cult. He never had this kind of clout at all. Uh, people were free to criticize Reagan on a variety of things without running any risk of being excommunicated. Same thing with George Bush. Now, look, there were some things David Frum tells some stories about when he was, you know, kicked out of uh, one of the think tanks for taking a certain position on Obamacare. But it wasn't it was not this kind of uniformity. It was not this kind of real passion. Uh, so so that has changed. On the other hand. You, you know, you cite the percentage of Republicans that believe the election was stolen. OK, so that's an immunity into the information. And I go back and I mention it in my book. And I will admit that I didn't fully understand the implications at the time. But there was a point in 2012 or so where 40 to 50 percent of Republicans believed that Barack Obama had not been born in the United States. They believed the birtherism. and you know, people were willing to look the other way. Um, or, you know, I mean, I remember denouncing it, but I didn't think it was that important. And yet in retrospect, um, in, 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 in retrospect, obviously the preconditions for Donald Trump had been laid that you had a huge portion of the Republican party that was already open, not just to conspiracy theories, but to racist conspiracy theories. And, I'm not sure you would have found very many conservatives who would have thought, hey, this is a sign of real. This is an emergency. We really need to do something about this. What are we going to how are we going to change this flow of disinformation? And the way the Republican Party dealt with it was by nominating the birther in chief uh, as their uh, candidate for president of the United States. Part of that might tie in with the Ron John problem, right? If he doesn't consider himself to be racist. Right. Because he's not surrounded by anybody who looks or thinks differently than him. Then, um, you know, it's possible because if you look back, there was a great Saturday Night Live skit, you know, in the 1980s that had um, a whole bunch of people standing in front of the Capitol and they showed an African-American man saying, I am the Republican Party. And then an Asian woman saying, I am the Republican Party. And then it took a wide shot and it was all <laughs> white men in suits saying we are the Republican Party. Um you know, because the Democratic Party has always been far more diverse uh, and the Republican Party has always been far more homogenous, then it probably, you know, goes to argue that people really did not see the threat because they weren't surrounded by people who said this is threatening. Well, OK, let me tell you a little a little story about Ron John. Um, this was in this was before his reelection in 2016. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I find what, what he's doing now to be so completely amazing. He actually got very involved. I'm trying to remember what the name of the project was, but it was like something Joseph. Uh, it was, it was some, it was, it was, it was a program to 
create a transportation system for unemployed black men in the central city of Milwaukee to be able to get to jobs where the jobs were up to the north of, of that, up in the Fox River Valley, where he's from. And it was a church-based organization, and it connected these men with jobs. And it was a fantastic program. It was really good. And Johnson took it very seriously. And it was one of the ways that I think he was kind of changing his image before Trump came along, which was somebody who was open to these kind of faith-based, interracial type of decisions. Now, maybe in retrospect, what it convinced him was because he had done that, therefore he had the he had the racism vaccine, right? See, hey, I've done these things for black guys, so I can say anything. I am okay. Um, so I, but uh, that was that was there was a lot of that going on in the Republican Party there for a while pre-Trump. You had people like Paul Ryan, who after he was defeated for vice president, went around the country and actually met with uh, you know folks in central cities across the country, trying to figure out what's going on. He was making a. a he was undertaking a project to redefine conservatism as as a again an empowering ideology um, that uh, and he was really he, he spent time trying to think of who the guy was he was going around with, but um, this was more than performative. He really wanted to do that, and from I really did think that there was a moment there where Republicans were going to go, all right, we really need to change our focus. We really need to take some of these ideas and apply them in a different way. And that was just, it feels like it was just blown away by the tornado of Trumpism. Charlie, I want to ask you about this uh, push by state legislatures all over the country to restrict voting rights. And it's all based upon a lie, right? So in 2016, when Trump lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, he lied and said, no, I won it. It was, there's widespread fraud in California and I actually won the popular vote. He didn't. That was a lie. Um, it was a, you, you could you could prove that it was a lie. Then for like a year or more before the 2020 election, he sowed doubt and said, if I don't win, it's fraudulent. If we let people, you know, mail in their votes, it's fraudulent. Uh, he lost the election. He lost by, you know, seven million votes or whatever the, the number was. And courts and states, election officials all over the country said this was a secure election. It was a successful election. It's an election we should be proud of. Uh, there was not widespread fraud. There was not widespread problems. There were not systematic failures. This was an extremely successful election that we should be proud of. He, of course, went on to lie and say, no, it was you know fraudulent, all that kind of stuff. And now that lie, which, again, is demonstrably a lie, is being used by Republicans all over the country to restrict voting rights. And I wanted to ask you, as somebody who's plugged in, you know, you, you know a lot of uh, people in really high places in the Republican Party. And so I want to ask you, you know, what animates this drive? From my estimation, there's there's sort of three streams of thought. One is it's just about power, right? So the Republicans are now a minority party. And so in order to maintain power, they need to uh, change the rules in a way that is beneficial to them. So restrict voting rights. Um, another possibility is that it's about race, right? That it's about racism. It's about prejudice. It's about restricting voting rights for certain kinds of people. And then there's a third possibility, I guess, which is they truly believe it. You tell me what what's really animating most Republicans to restrict voting rights after this extremely successful election that we should be proud of. No, I and I think those three uh, streams are, are are correct, and and I've dealt with people basically on on all levels of that. I mean, let, let's let's start with fact that there are people who are genuinely concerned about voter integrity. They really believe they want to make sure that their vote is counted and they've heard anecdotes of, of fraud and they, 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 you know, want elections to be honest. And there, there, there's a segment there. I remember when the, this will go back to the early 1990s, the first time that the idea of uh, voter ID came up. Um, I remember thinking that it was not going to be that controversial <laughs> beginning of being wrong about many things. Um, that it wasn't going to be that controversial because you had to have IDs for other things. And it just basically was one more way of, of assuring voter integrity. And I will admit that I didn't think that it was going to become the partisan hot button that it could be, or that it would be used as a weapon to suppress the vote in the way that I think some people thought of it as, as being. So I, I think it is this combination 
where the, you have had the ground laid for some time about voter integrity and voter fraud, and people will do this. But then I think there's this larger narrative of demographic change that that really overlay a lot of the the Trumpist immigration uh, push. And you hear it from the people like the Ann Coulter wing of the party, which is that uh, unless you restrict immigration, Republicans will never win elections again because these people will come into this country and they will lack American values and they will vote for Democrats. So a lot of this, the immigration restriction was also an attempt to restrict uh, access to the ballot box because they have internalized that is that the moment that white people aren't, do not constitute a majority of the electorate, that Republicans are screwed. So you have that happening at the same time as a pushback. So those two issues become together. So it, that's kind of the racist element. And, and then there's also just the sense that and you, you hear this quiet part being said out loud that if everybody's allowed to vote, if we make it easy to vote, Democrats won't uh, will, will start winning elections. Republicans won't win elections. And I think they've really internalized that belief that the larger the turnout, particularly large inner city turnouts, um, will lead to the loss of power. And it becomes a matter of just raw power. And you see this in states like Arizona and Georgia that, that had no problem with many of these voting laws. Uh, until up until Democrats started winning. And then suddenly we have to change the rules to make it harder for them to win because we believe that not everybody should have a right to vote. But it is stunning the degree to which, and I share this, the degree to which the big lie about the 2020 election is driving this massive assault on the electoral system. It will be one of the biggest rollbacks of voter access since Jim Crow. And it's happening uh, with the support of the Republican Party really up and down. I mean, in terms of issues that motivate Republicans right now, um, it's 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 not opposition to the one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package. They're not talking about the deficit and the debt. What really gets the you know, really appeals to the Republican id right now uh, are these electoral changes. And by the way, it's worth remembering that in 1965. When the Voting Rights Act was passed, it passed the United States Senate by a vote of with 79 votes. Republicans did not used to be against voting rights. Um, when it was re, when the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized under George W. Bush, I believe the vote uh, in the United States Senate was unanimous. And Bush then re-signed it. So this assault on voting rights is in some ways, a very recent phenomenon in the Republican Party. People who listen will push back and say there's been voter suppression going back to Jim Crow for many years. But at least in the last, uh, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, you didn't see it. Kind of remarkable to think of that, that, you know, how much the Republican Party has regressed from where it was in 1965, that we're at this point now where the party is all in and making it as hard to vote as possible. And by the way, I think it's going to backfire on them in a lot of different ways. Well, just the, and maybe I, you know, I'm a, I'm not a political scientist like Ali, and I'm not a, you know a political lifer like you, Charlie. So maybe you guys will both laugh at this question and say, "Oh, well, Lawrence, how naive you are!" But uh, traditionally, when this happens to a party, you adjust your platform so that right. you also have 49.9 percent of the country voting for you, and the other side has 49.9 percent, and you duke it out. Uh, so what the Republican Party did was, and they had that pre-Trump, so that they adopted a guy and a platform that made them less popular. Yeah. And rather than adjust that, they are now just attacking voting rights. That seems totally insane and illogical. And like, a, I mean, you guys have made this point in the bulwark several times, like it's suicidal. Well, I think that they think, yes, I agree with that uh, completely. But I think that some of them are also thinking that, look, look at the demographic changes in this country. Unless we make those changes, we're going to be wiped out anyway. Um, but but you but you're right. A healthy political party does try to expand its its appeal as opposed to narrowing the electorate. But I do think that there's a large segment of of the party that thinks, you know, uh, again, uh, you know, women, young people, black people, Hispanics, Asian Americans. Um, if we don't do something, they're just going to outvote us. We're all going to become California. 
So, uh, yes, and I think it's going to backfire in a couple different ways. No, num- number one is I think once you become identified as the anti-voting party, I don't think that's a winning strategy. It makes it less likely that you're going to do the things that you need to do to win elections. And then, and then no, num- number, number three, some of these changes, I think, are going to have the effect of suppressing uh, their own vote. Look what happened in Georgia. Where I think a lot of the rhetoric about the, you know, it's all rigged, it's all rigged, you know, you can't trust the the mail-in ballot, had the effect of depressing Republican votes enough that Republicans lost two unlosable elections for the United States Senate and lost the control of the United States Senate because of this this trend. You want to talk about, I mean, in terms of the thesis that this whole anti-voting uh, effort is going to backfire in the Republican Party. Exhibit number A would be look at the state of Georgia, people. And it seems like that the the alliance right now between the elites and that conservative incorporated and then the voter base, you know, it's it's like a instead of having that buffet that you were speaking of before, it's really sort of two factions and folks who are smarter than I am call this plutocratic populism, you know, but <laughs> These these factions are at war with one another because the the folks who were trying to maintain that donor class, they are advocating for policies that the voter base does not necessarily like. And you throw all the media into that. And what you end up with is a very, you know, sort of bottom up, you know, demand side calculation. And. Then when you throw in the idea that we have just gerrymandered everything, it's not just congressional districts. It's also we have sorted ourselves by moving to different states and we are watching different forms of political information. I'm not going to call a lot of it news, but political information. And then you get on social media and the algorithm just feeds you exactly what you already believe. So you're hit with all this confirmation bias stuff. And I, I live in a very Trumpy district and the folks around me really don't know anybody who did vote for Biden. And so when they are told that, in fact, you know, he stole the election, it resonates and it feels real because when they go outside, if they go to the barbershop, everybody there voted for Trump and all their neighbors, there's Trump sign after Trump sign. So it feels real. And all of the other stimulus that they get from their, you know, congressman to their senator to all of their friends on Facebook, it all reaffirms not only the big lie, but everything else that's going with it. And, no, that's and- exactly right. I, 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 li- I live in an area roughly like that as as well. Um, and uh, th- this complicates, by the way, you mentioned gerrymandering. This complicates the problem because in the state of Wisconsin, where we are hyper gerrymandered, um, it's kind of difficult to draw the lines considering that uh, people have clustered, you know, rather dramatically into certain areas. So you have, you know, 90 percent Democratic districts uh, next to, you know, 80 percent Republican districts. You know, what are you going to do with that? It, it is it is actually a the sorting out has been uh, very real, both in social media and and physically. You mentioned the the the, the you know, plutocrats and uh, and and populists, how they're at war with one another. They're actually not at war anymore. I mean, everybody's surrendered. If you'll if you'll notice, you know, I, I thought after after January 6th, there was that moment when you thought, OK, so the mainstream of the party is going to push back on this. Now, I think that to the extent there's a civil war, it's that uh, certain of these folks, the Chamber of Commerce types, the Mitch McConnell's just go into their 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 studies. I mean, really, I mean, what what is what is their plan for the future? Because they don't have a strategy and they're certainly lack the will to fight back against him. And so I do think there's a little bit of of like maybe it'll just go away. It'll go away somehow. I'm not going to do anything to make it go away, but maybe something will come up. Something will happen. Maybe the sweet meteor of death will hit Mar-a-Lago because beyond that, explain the Mitch McConnell, you know, strategy for winning the Civil War. You know, I think a lot of people who are really plugged in, you know, who are in academia or Charlie folks like you who are really plugged in to the the politics of all this stuff, I think you can really miss and and we can miss. I include myself in that in that category, but I think we can miss just how much this stuff really is real to a lot of people, right? So I have people in my social network who are educated people they have they have jobs that require them to have you know uh, really a, a high level of intellectual ability, you know, and teachers and engineers who tell me that Tucker Carlson actually is a news source. Really, 
who believe the election was stolen. Um, I don't know that we're being pessimistic enough about how much respectable, educated people are buying into the disinformation. Oh, I, I, I agree. And I mean, uh, JVL is our resident, you know, super pessimist, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not that far off, uh, of this because, you know, he makes the distinction between, you know, the, the established party and the grassroots party and understand the established party has no power. These, the institutional party has, has no power in the Republican party. It's all with the base wants and the base wants this stuff. And the base is going to want this stuff for a long time. And the reason it's going to get worse is because going back to our earlier conversation about the incentive structure, it's not just Fox news. It's Fox news looking over its shoulder at even crazier, less responsible, uh, outlets. So they're looking over their shoulder at Newsmax, um, which is looking over its shoulder at one American network now. And so the incentives, so for the people who thought that Fox news would move back to the center and to sanity after the election, they misunderstood the fact that Fox knows that it's facing an existential threat from its right. They don't want to get outflanked on its right. And this is the phenomenon of conservative talk radio as well. And Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh decided to go all in for Trump because he knew that if he didn't, he would lose his audience and he would be outflanked by younger, more aggressive folks who were more populist. So it's going to be interesting to see he's gone. He's going to be replaced by Don Ben Bongino. And is it Dan, Dan Bongino? Um, and a few years from now, you're going to find yourself saying, boy, I, I miss Rush. This guy's really crazy. You know? <laughs> just, oh, God. It gets worse no. and worse. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Bongino is is Rush Limbaugh without the, without the humor, the brains of the charm. You know, huh. I love the idea that Fox News is being primaried. Yeah, because very I, much. I, <laughs> it's always a primary. Great. It no, is. no, it, 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 is. it is always a primary and it's the same segment. So Fox News lives in a very, very red, you know, area and it can't lose 40 percent of its audience to somebody else. It's just not they're not going to do that. That is just that is the best analogy I think I've ever heard. Well, can I just say something positive, though? Because, I mean, so we're, we're talking on like the second full day of spring. OK, and I really do get the sense that this country is spring loaded to have some optimism that, you know, the spring is coming. The vaccines are out there. We may unless we blow it with the pandemic, you know. Thank you, Florida and Miami. Um, but that that's going to pass the economy is going to is heavily juiced and it's certainly possible that what's going to happen is that that america just has this burst of good feeling that lasts for at least more than five minutes um and that it that it benefits the non-crazy element of our politics so um you know the flip side of course is the border could uh you know catch fire and we could have you know, more, you know, protests if the officer in Minneapolis is, is acquitted and there are, there's urban riots and things can go wrong. But I, I, I think there's there's the, the, some of the poll numbers are showing that people are thinking that the country is going on the right track. And we're seeing numbers that we haven't seen in a, in a decade. So there's some positive stuff. I have nothing positive to say about the future of the Republican Party, but maybe the future of the country for people who are not so online. You know, if you don't sit around thinking, oh, my God, which direction is the Republican Party going to go? You know, what's Josh Hawley going to say? You know, now is Ron DeSantis the future face of the Republican Party? You're going to depress yourself. But if you look at America itself, this country is in a, in, you know, right now in a position to make kind of a pretty good comeback, which will drive the right wing crazy. Because imagine if it's Joe Biden who makes America great again. Oh, man. Ali, I'll, I'll let you get the last question, but I just I do just have to say this. Uh in, in a non-tribal time where we could actually th see things more clearly, two of the unforgivables for me, there's a lot that Trump did that was unforgivable, but two of the unforgivables, one is, of course, undermining democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, I've, I never thought I would see that. Uh, the second was, and I'd love to just get your very quick feedback on this, and then Ali, you can ask your, your last question, but the second one was totally refusing to have a transition to allow yeah. the new incoming administration to deal with the worst pandemic 
since 1918. That is an unforgivable for a human, let alone a politician. No, I think that's it's 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 stunning, and we shouldn't forget that. And I and I think it's going to be an historical uh, blot on him. That'll be one of the things that people remember about him that he that he not only uh, tried to overturn the election, but that he didn't show up at his successor's inauguration, and that uh, that, that during a national crisis he basically um, went a wall. This has been fantastic. We want to thank you so very, very much for all of your time. And um, I just want to ask one last short question and maybe plant a seed. Do you remember when the National Review used to host cruises for its most dedicated subscribers? Have have you ever thought about having like a bulwark bash for your most devoted members? And um, where can I buy tickets? Yeah, it won't be a cruise, probably. I, I, no, I think cruise. I, I, is probably I think it's going to be a long time before a lot of us get on, the, on, a, on, a, on a cruise ship. And uh, no, I, I don't know. I, I hope that we have a. I hope we have a bulwark bash that is not simply a big Zoom call. I'm just, I think we're. I think we're ready to move past that. Charlie Sykes, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank, thank you. It's you. been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Utterly Moderate. We are deeply appreciative of all the support we are getting from listeners, not only in the U.S but in countries around the world. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. As always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. Or you can listen to us on utterlymoderate.com, where you will find every episode as well as each episode's companion resources. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully, carefully.